Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Food, dining, the experience of eating together. These are things that typically have united us, particularly over the longer history of humankind. We gather around the table, we eat the same food, we talk, we bond. But not so much now, partly because we've become more kind of polyethnic, so there's different food styles around. Overlaying that are politics and social concerns about what foods are and are not right to eat. And overlaying those are an increasing number of dietary preferences and concerns. The number of people reporting glucose intolerance rises each year. All right, so food as a minefield is the topic of today's show after this news. Chickens laying chemical eggs up on artificial farms in the hills. And bug eyed roosters on wobbly legs that they're keeping awake with pills. Well, didn't you ever stop and wonder when you look in the mirror, is this the way I'm supposed to be feeling? Then you turn on the faucet and out comes something You wouldn't wash your automobile in Your automobile in I'm a victim of foodophobia And I'm too damn scared to eat A taste of honey makes me feel real funny And I faint at the sight of meat Cause I'm a victim of All right, so we are going to be talking today about how our attitudes toward food have changed, both individually and collectively. I mean, the things that we as individuals are willing or eager to eat or unwilling (laughs) and averse to eating, uh, it's all just changed drastically. And then when you get a whole bunch of people sitting around the table, it gets even more complicated. Um, I'm 67. I know. Uh, When I was in high school, I knew a vegetarian. Ned the vegetarian. He's the veg- was the vegetarian for the whole school. Uh, I don't know when I learned the term vegan. If you pressed me on it, I'm going to say maybe around 1990. Uh, there were people when I in the 1970s who were lactose intolerant, but that phrase was not around. Same for celiac disease or non-celiac gluten intolerance. I knew people who kept kosher. I don't think I heard the term halal for a really long time. Nobody eats ate sushi, so nobody had to not eat sushi. Um, it's just as we've become more diverse, we've learned a lot about different foods and dishes and tastes, but we've also learned about, well, things that could conceivably go wrong with food or things that we think we shouldn't eat. And God forbid you should invite allegedly the greatest football player who ever lived, Tom Brady, over to your house. Here's what his chef uh, says he eats and doesn't eat, mainly doesn't. 
No white sugar, no white flour, no MSG. I'll use raw olive oil, but never cook with olive oil. I only cook with coconut oil. Fats like canola oil turn into trans fats. I use Himalayan pink salt as the sodium. I never use iodized salt. Tom doesn't eat nightshades because they're not anti-inflammatory. So no tomatoes, peppers, mushrooms, or eggplants. Uh, tomatoes trickle in every now and then. I'm very cautious uh, about t- tomatoes. No coffee, no caffeine, no fungus, no dairy. I think I've read someplace else, no strawberries, too. So, I mean, <laughs> it gets really complicated is what I'm saying. We have some guests here who are going to try to decomplicate this a little bit or at least tell us how we got into this particular jam. Uh, Kathy Kaufman is going to start things out, a lecturer on food studies at the New School uh, and chairwoman of the Oxford Symposium uh, on Food and Cookery. Welcome to our conversation. Thank you so much, Colin. I have to say I was very entertained by that theme music coming in. <laughs> Great song by David Fishburne. Uh, all right. So um, let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, OK, I'm 67. My parents, I think my parents ate about maybe eight different things. You know, I mean, I, I don't think that they, you know, had an and, and certainly uh, for their generation, Italian food would have meant spaghetti and meatballs and garlic bread. And that is absolutely it. And similarly, limited understandings of what, say, Chinese food was. I mean, we could go on and on. Um, and, and I think for older Americans, sometimes this the welter of choices is in intimidating. But there there seem to be layers and layers of complexity, right? There's not just all the choices. There are the kind of anti-choices, food you shouldn't eat, either for health or political reasons. Maybe you can say a little bit about how, how we evolved into our current state. Oh, that is a big question. I think a lot of it has to do with media, uh, as well as advances in nutritional sciences. When you think about it, um, we really didn't know anything about vitamins until basically the turn of the 20th century. So nutritional sciences is a very modern uh, concept, and we're still learning a lot. Part of the problem is that it's so difficult to do controlled experiments in terms of what is healthful, what is not healthful, because there are just so many variables. Um, So I think a lot of Why we got here is that we're still actually a little bit in the dark and we're fumbling our way through. Um, With media, obviously, uh, both uh, newspapers that developed food columns basically in the mid-20th century, uh, radio, certainly when radio was in its heyday, there were all sorts of programs discussing how to cook at home, what you should be eating. So this is a long time coming, uh, and the internet has really just put everything up on steroids because you can find any group that will support, uh, you know, the nightshades versus the gluten freeze versus the strawberry allergies. Um, I mean, think about it. Uh, we are of a similar generation, and when we were kids, you would get peanuts on an airplane. You can't get peanuts now anymore because of the peanut allergies. Right. And and in some cases, I assume it has to do with relatively, I guess, more subtle detection. I mean, but if you just looked at the numbers, it would seem as though the number of people with allergies, the number of children and the number of adults with food allergies is growing. That's probably not true, right? It's just that we're better at spotting them. I suspect that we are better at spotting them, certainly. Whether the number of allergies has grown, um, 
it's possible that it has. There are some theories, and I'm by no means expert on this, uh, but some theories that lack of breastfeeding has um, not passed on certain immunities or certain abilities to uh, digest certain foods without problems. Um, and it could also be, again, these are difficult issues, um, that some of the genetic ma manipulation of foods that we have in our agricultural system uh, could be influencing these things as well. It's a very, very complicated thing to uh, unpack, but I do think that not only are we better at detecting, but we may actually be increasing our allergies. Okay, so yeah, it is really complicated. And if you want the answer to a question, for example, does sugar increase the rate of inflammation, inflammation that could contribute to cardiovascular disease and a whole, you know, thicket of, of other uh, kinds of problems, you can look on the internet and get pretty confused pretty fast, right? Because as you say, these things are really, really complicated and the source you're going to also may see things a different way than something you'd find scrolling down on Google two or three more spots. Well, that's absolutely true. And if you'll let me bring in an historical analogy, which I think actually is kind of uh, revealing, there used to be through the um, ancient world to the very late Middle Ages, early modern world, the basic uh, medical theory was something called humoral medicine. And it basically said that people were divided into four different categories depending upon their quote humoral makeup and that certain foods would benefit person in category a but be very damaging to person in category b and i think we are actually starting to see some of that with advances in medicine that is very very closely tied to your own genetic makeup and i suspect that's true with food as well that there are going to be some people for whom sugar will, you know, just send them into, you know, some sort of diabetic situation versus others who seem to be able to eat a lot of sugar without any ill effects whatsoever. Yeah, no, I think that humoral medicine is going to come back. My, I'm seeing a humoral doctor right now, uh, totally middle ages. He says, I have a troll living in my stomach. Um, <laughs> Very nice guy. I'm not sure he really knows what he's talking about. So, yeah, no, there's a, no, there's there are so many other layers to this, right? I mean, maybe a next layer is a lot of people want to eat ethically. Um, you want to not cause undue suffering of animals. You want to not contribute to climate change through excess methane production, not, not so much by you, uh, but by cattle and things like that. But once again, that is a kind of a Gordian knot. You know, it's not an easy thing. to. F I found out this morning, I was reading an article in National Geographic, that grass-fed cattle are actually worse for the environment than feedlot cattle. So, I mean, that, there goes like the last 20 years of my beef consumption. Um, yeah, I'd be curious what the theory is if the grass is a little bit harder to digest than um, the grains, although I'm not sure. I'm not no, a cow, you so you, I can't you, you, just, you just nailed it. Cattle belch at least twice as much methane on grass-based diet as they do on grain. Uh, so, yeah. That, that That's distressing because, of course, we don't uh, like the feedlot uh, situation for some of the other environmental impacts. I mean, the answer does seem to be, and this is not necessarily a popular answer, is that we need to reduce our consumption of meat, particularly quadrupeds and particularly cattle, 
um, you know, the hamburger, while it is, you know, part of American culture and American identity, um, perhaps we shouldn't eat so many of them. No, we, we in many cases would like to know a little bit more about uh, if we're going to eat, eat an animal, how is the animal treated? If we're going to eat a vegetable, what are the environmental implications of the vegetable? Um, I mean, I just another thing I learned today is that a lot of coconuts, this sounds like some kind of SNL routine, but it's not. Uh, the coconuts are harvested by macaques, by these monkeys who are, for the most part, kept in pretty um, abusive conditions uh, and constantly sort of tethered. And they go up in trees and get the, and get the coconuts. And I think about all the coconut oil we're supposed to. Tom Brady only uses coconut oil because it's supposedly so healthy. I mean, it feels sometimes as though there are two trains on the track running in a collision course. I, I think that's absolutely correct. It is very difficult to have both ethically sourced food, food that is affordable. There is also the um, economic and social justice uh, aspects to this because obviously industrial produced food tends to be cheaper than the artisanally produced food. And what do we do with the large swaths of the population who can't afford to go and spend $6 for tomatoes at their local farmer's market? Um, these are definite issues that we need to deal with. And I do think you're absolutely right that there often is uh, a conflict between what will be a healthy diet, what will be kind to the environment, and what will be something that um, will be accessible to uh, the greatest number of people, both here and uh, abroad. I mean, think about what's happening in Africa with droughts and that sort of thing. So another response to complexity uh, is to simplify. And this, you know, uh, stabs are made at that occasionally. I'm thinking in particular of Michael Pollan. Uh, what was the manifesto? Eat, feel, eat real food, mostly plants. Uh, and, Not and, so much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, 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 but he also says, and don't eat things that, have, that contain ingredients or chemicals or whatever whose names your grandmother would not recognize. Um, and, and I don't know. I mean, you could do worse than just following those guidelines. You could do worse than following those guidelines, and they're not so different from something that, uh, say, an Alice Waters mm -hmm. would promote. But part of the problem, nonetheless, is still with access and affordability, because processed foods, um, whether they're you know your Lucky Charms cereal, and I you know, don't mean to beat up unnecessarily on whatever it is, General Mills, or, or your Impossible Burger which is a highly processed food, but is it okay for the environment? Um, these things become increasingly complicated because I've, you speak to nutritionists and folks who really have expertise in this area and impossible burgers, all of these meat substitutes, very highly processed foods. Would they be something Michael Pollan would endorse? I don't know, we should ask him. Um, because certainly they seem to have better consequences for the environment. They seem to satisfy the niche of wanting that meaty, juicy taste. But they are certainly things that your grandmother wouldn't recognize. So, um, Kathy Kaufman, another thing that's happening 
that I think is mostly good but also very complicated is that we're, I think, increasingly comfortable talking about our own approaches to these different kinds of foods. Uh, I think, you know, as you and I were growing up, probably somebody who, first of all, wouldn't even have known, as I said, the term lactose intolerant or celiac disease or non-celiac gluten intolerance or uh, that person today is pretty comfortable or more comfortable anyway, saying, well, I, I don't eat that, I can't eat that, or I'm a vegan, I'm this, I'm that. Um, and in a way, uh, what people probably kept to themselves, they are a little bit more comfortable sharing maybe with a potential dinner host or someone you're out to eat with. I don't know. What what are you observing about that? Maybe I've got it all wrong. Maybe people are still a little embarrassed by what they do and don't eat. Uh, I don't think they are particularly embarrassed by what they do or don't eat. And I think a lot of that has been a consequence of um, actually shifts in etiquette. If you look back at etiquette books from the 19th century through the mid 20th century, they all tell the invited dinner guest that um, if they're served something they don't like, which could be a code for, you know, they know does not agree with them. Um, they should just move it around on the plate a little bit and pretend to be eating some of it, but never say anything to the host about, you know, this is not acceptable to me. I think sometime in the 1960s or 70s, you see both the etiquette books changing and the culture changing in expressing, you know, what do I want? Sort of that me generation. We probably both remember Al Franken's, you know, <laughs> You know, what does this say about me, Alf Franken mm -hmm. uh, tagline? And I think people have become much more uh, comfortable. I know whenever I have people over for dinner that I don't know what their preferences or needs might be. I ask them if there are things that they will not eat or I give them a couple of choices. I'm thinking about serving X, Y or Z, uh, anything uh, good for you or not good for you. Um, and try and accommodate uh, that. But uh, I think people are much less hesitant to discuss their needs um, in a way that, uh, you know, we've all become a little more uh, obvious about expressing who we are and what we need. Although, is there also some potential reaction formation to that, too? I mean, uh, my, my once again, very unscientific sense of things is that there's also increasingly a cohort going, really, you're paleo? Really? <laughs> Is that oh, something yeah. I have no, to no, deal with? Always, yeah. No, there's always absolutely the reaction. I mean, think about uh, Sarah Palin bringing chocolate chip cookies into a school after Michelle Obama was initiating her Let's Move uh, initiative at the White House and trying to improve school lunches. Always going to be a backlash. And let's face it, eight-year-olds really tend to like chocolate chip cookies uh, more so than broccoli. So it was a little bit of a hard sell, although I will give uh, the first, the former first lady credit as well as people like an Alice Waters that, um, you know, exposing kids to small-scale gardens and bringing them into the kitchen with these sorts of things does seem to change attitudes. They yeah. do react well to it. No, I thought that was great what uh, the former first lady did. Uh, and, and the trick also is somehow or other, I mean, it's going to be very, very hard for arugula to compete with chocolate chip cookies. But if you can, if you can make, make it seem fun on some kind of basis, uh, I mean, and that's always been some of the pushback, right? The people, the Michael Pollans of the world, they don't want us to have any fun. They don't want us to eat anything that's really 
you know, delicious, uh, and they should go away. Um, it does seem that the messaging has changed a little bit, right? There are ways to make this seem a little bit more enjoyable and a little less censorious. Uh, that's absolutely correct, that um, if you can actually get certainly kids and even young adults or adults into a kitchen. Um, I used to teach cooking, and I found that whenever a class made whatever dish they were making, they always loved it. There was this pride of ownership of this is the labor of my hands. And if you start with that and are, you know, cooking and preparing things, either as kids or grownups, there's a certain sense of this is fun. As, as long as it's not the drudgery of I have to do this, I've got to, you know, feed the kids, feed the spouse, and then go to my second job. Obviously, that's not a lot of fun. But there are ways of making cooking and what we put in the temple that is our bodies a lot more fun. Yeah, I think one of the fun parts for some of us, and you're right, there is once again a price barrier to some of this stuff. The you know uh, pastured eggs are going to cost uh, you know a whole lot more than eggs that you would buy you know off the shelf uh, in a supermarket. Um, but it is it is fun going to farmers markets, uh, and it's fun talking to the farmers and getting to know them and sort of beginning to associate faces, voices, um, even life stories with the food that you're getting. And when you do that, obviously, you're going to be buying food that's grown closer to you, the cost of shipping it, uh, or or the cost of making it into a kind of food that could survive weeks of shipping. Um, mm-hmm. th- those all sort of go away. Absolutely. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more. I'm at a farmer's market probably three times a week. I'm lucky I've got a couple of choices uh, to go to. And it makes such a difference in the quality of the cooking. Certainly in the summer, um, the food prepares itself. If you look at it and, you know, are a discerning shopper at the farmer's market, there's very little you have to do. So just very quickly here as we get ready to wrap up, it's going to get hotter uh, and we are going to have to make other kinds of choices as a planet uh, about how we eat, what we eat. Our, the different societies and the different economies will make different choices. But when you think about the future of food, what do you think about? I think that there is tremendous awareness particularly among folks 40 and under, that they're going to be on this planet for another 40 or more years and that we cannot continue on this path. And they are going to be willing to make some of the changes and sacrifices. Now, not everyone will do this, but I think we will have many more people who will be willing to use meat the way, for example, it used to be used in China, which was essentially a condiment to a carbohydrate and uh, vegetable, uh, a stir fry, when you think of so much of Chinese cooking. Uh, And I think we're going to start seeing these different, more traditional ethnic recipes being something that will be adapted and become part of American cookery with less of an emphasis on that center of the plate chunk of meat or other animal protein, plus a couple of side dishes, which has been sort of the Western European model of eating. I think we are changing that both because we need to environmentally and we're becoming more sophisticated with different uh, ethnic cuisines that are no longer going to be ethnic. They're just going to be cuisines that have come from abroad that are now integrated into American food history. 
All right, Kathy Kaufman, a lecturer of food studies at the New School and chairwoman of the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about sort of, I don't know, how this spills out into our relationships. Breakfast, black coffee, one slice of dry toast, no butter, no jelly, no jam. Lunch, just some lettuce, two celery stalks, no booze, no potatoes, no ham. Dinner, one chicken wing, broiled and not fried, no gravy, no biscuits, no pie. And this diet and diet and diet and diet sure is a rough way to die. So pass me a carrot stick, peel me a prune. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Hey guys. Hello. Hi, hello. My name is Dana. I'll be uh, taking care of you today. If you have any questions about the menu, please let me know. I guess I do have a question about the chicken. If you could just tell us a little bit more about it. Uh, The chicken is a heritage breed, uh, woodland raised chicken that's been fed a diet of sheep's milk, soy, and hazelnuts. Okay, this is is local? Yes, absolutely. I'm going to ask you just one more time, and it's local? It is. Is that USDA organic or Oregon organic or Portland organic? It's just all across the board, organic. The hazelnuts, these are local. How big is the area where the chickens are able to roam free? I'm sorry to interrupt. I have exactly the same question. Four acres. So here is the chicken you'll be enjoying tonight. You have this information. This is fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, His name was Colin. Here are his papers, okay? That's great. He looks like a happy little yeah. guy who runs around. A lot of friends, other chickens as friends. Putting his little wing around another one and kind of like you know, palling around. I don't know that I can speak to that level of uh, intimate knowledge about him. Um, they do a lot to make sure that their chickens uh, uh, are very happy. When you say they, I mean, who are these people raising Colin? Of course, I'm going to love a thing about a chicken named Colin. That's um, from, obviously, from Portlandia. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit now about how our food becomes part of our identity and what happens when we get our identity in together with other people's identities. Uh, joining us now to help with that is Dr. Uma Naidu, uh, a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, professional chef, and a trained nutrition specialist. She is the director of nutritional and lifestyle psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital and the author of This Is Your Brain on Food. Welcome to our show. Thanks, Colin. Thanks for having me. So, um, you know, I think the sort of the cliche for this uh, has become 
to some degree, Thanksgiving, this notion that people get together and, and probably at one time you worried more about whether Uncle Dan was going to drink too much or whether Aunt Irma and Cousin Peter were going to have a fight about politics or religion. But increasingly now people bring all of their kind of food identities and, and food sensitivities and food aversions to the table. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about that and kind of what it does to the rest of our relationships. I think that, you know, there are what we face in the U.S., and I think we bring this to the to the Thanksgiving table, is a lot of uh, what I call diet dilemmas and food wars. And this then helps uh, individuals that, that sometimes is not so helpful shape their identities in ways that may or may not be related to medical symptoms or even mental health symptoms. Um, and I think that it gets confusing for people because there are several diets or several health-promoting, say, media events or a new superfood or a new diet uh, that is released ever so often. And it tends to have, have people focus on that versus what I think that we should be trying to do, which is move away from the standard American diet or the SAD diet called that for a reason, mm -hmm. towards a more healthy whole foods diet of just actual food versus the processed, ultra-processed foods. Because it's a good amount of mounting data that those types of foods are just not good for our brain in addition to our waistlines and our body. But the trick also is to do it without creating so much anxiety around it that that becomes a, another kind of problem. We don't want to uh, take food, which can be a source of good kinds of comfort, and turn it into a source of, of fear or friction. So maybe you could talk uh, about that part of it. Um I think that that's a really great point, Colin, because, you know, people may have their own issues with food. Uh, and when they are reading and seeing things constantly being um, shared in different ways, including social media, which is a huge source of information for many individuals, they, they either become afraid of a food or feel they need to exclude a food or become anxious about eating that food. And then they bring these anxieties to the dinner table, whether it's just in their home each evening or whether it's at you know a family get-together. And what I see in my clinical practice is a lot of angst and anxiety about the actual food and, and what should I be including and will I be healthy if I, if I can't afford the superfood, the so-called superfood that has been you know, named, named somewhere. Right. I do think that that makes a difference emotionally uh, and psychologically. But I think also uh, compounding that is the whole question, and we talked a little bit about this in the preceding segment, of value sets. So people want to eat foods that either are sort of sociopolitically and globally virtuous or, or at least seem to be that. And, and I think it's mm -hmm. truer now uh, with millennials and Gen Zers who I think have a, are more keenly attuned anyway to the notion that what they eat might be affecting somebody in Peru. Um, I think this is true, and I think that younger generations are definitely uh, food conscious in a way that is that something I have observed to be different. I do think that you know when it comes to nourishing our bodies and our mind, we have to almost put on a little bit of a practical hat because what may might suit you and say you have a plant based diet or say your friend is a carnivore, whatever it is between the extremes and in between. Everyone has, you know, the right to eat what they want and to make those choices. You know, I, what I see a lot of is people either getting confused or making choices that are unfortunate for their mental health and drive symptoms of depression, anxiety, lack of focus, brain fog, and things like that. 
And I think um, if we, I think that, you know, it's great to worry about whoever your colleague or someone in Peru, but also helping anyone else really starts with helping ourselves because that's really what good self-care is. Self-care is not selfishness. Self-care is taking care of yourself, your own body, your mind, your 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 brain specifically, and then being able to do for others. Um, so I think that some of those messages do get mixed, and I feel like it gets us away from the overarching message of trying to eat real food versus the types of foods that we tend to gravitate towards, like the processed and ultra-processed fast foods, fast foods and things like that. And are those is that is that latter group of foods what you're referring to when you're talking before about the idea of food that's actually detrimental to your your psychiatric health or your mental health? Uh, that that is correct, and that doesn't mean that we have to exclude them entirely. But we just have to have that awareness. You know, um, the there've been there's, there's a lot of research now emerging around the gut microbiome, its impact on mental health, the impact of therefore how food impacts mental health, and things like processed, ultra processed junk foods actually have been shown to drive uh, you know certain certain satiety signals in the body to however you want to reach out for more of the same food to um, to crave those foods and they're engineered to be that way so it's sort of a losing battle when we as humans are eating a processed food and think oh you know i can just give this up tomorrow because the the way that they are made is is driving certain signals in our brain and body so one way to handle that is to start to step back from some of those foods and start to include whole foods and cut back on the less healthy foods in our diet. No one is perfect, so I'm not trying to assume that I or anyone else will have a perfect diet, but we can make a slight effort towards a healthier norm. And I think that would that would definitely uh, impact us uh, positively in terms of our overall health. I'm also wondering if you see, uh, once again, probably particularly in younger people, but not exclusively younger people, ways in which there's a, almost a paralysis or, or some kind of angst uh, associated with just the constant emerging new ideas about food. I mean, uh, over the course of a given year, you can pick up the science section in the New York Times and read something really yeah. affirming and good about coffee or read something really bad about coffee in terms of what it's doing to you. And then there's that whole question of the world. I mean, Gen Zers and millennials, I mean, avocado toast is one of their symbols, but avocados are like really bad for the environment. They use a ton of water. Uh, they you know deplete rainforests. Uh, almonds, almond milk, soybeans, rice, coffee, all these things have, you know, pretty strong environmental impacts. And I'm guessing that the more conscientious you are about that kind of stuff, the more, once again, food starts to seem like a source of anxiety as opposed to a source of joy. I completely agree. And I do see that a lot. Um, the and, and, and that's where it comes back to your individual choices around um, having and eating things that you feel comfortable with, that you feel aligned with, whether it's your um, socio-political views, whether it's your views on um, just animal rights, whether what, whatever your views are. Um, I think making those choices for yourself and then proceeding is what's going to help your mental well-being and your psychological health. Because if you're constantly in battle with what the next segment in the New York Times has, that's information that you can certainly integrate it, but relying entirely on that with not not accounting for what you would like uh, becomes important too. Because, you know, uh, the New York Times will have various uh, bits of information 
all of which I know that they fact check a lot. That doesn't mean that that food is right for you. This is something I call body intelligence in nutritional psychiatry, which is that what you, you know, what you eat, Colin, may not work for me and vice versa, even if it's a healthy food. So I think it goes back to that as well, individual choice, um, aligning with your own goals, your own views, and almost putting aside uh, that bombardment of information, because I think that's really what drives the angst in people and leads them to feeling anxious about food, feeling anxiety in their lives, um, dips their mood, um, and overall just uh, is problematic for their psychological health. Wow, that was a great answer. <laughs> a lot of really great stuff in it. Uh, Dr. Uma Naidu uh, is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, professional chef, and trained nutrition specialist. She's the director of nutritional and lifestyle psychiatry at Mass General Hospital and the author of This Is Your Brain on Food. Thanks for spending some time with us. Thanks so much, Colin. Great to talk to you. All right. Uh, we're going to take a little break. We're going to leap onto the front lines of all this, and that is college dining facilities where young people with a lot of ideas about food go to get that food. Right. It's good. Uh, it's a good time to hand out some uh, credit and some plaudits. Uh, Kat Pastor is, as usual, our technical producer. With us, this is so exciting. When one of our interns produces a show, uh, Anya Grandalski has been a joy to have around uh, as an intern. Uh, this this episode was conceived by Anya and produced by Anya under the watchful eye of senior producer Lily Tyson and Jonathan McPants uh, jumping in to help out with clips and stuff like that because it's all hands on deck. Uh, so thanks to all of you uh, who worked on the show. Uh, and we are going to finish the show here by, as I said before, there's sort of a place where a lot of this stuff has to get thrashed out. It's like the biggest Thanksgiving dinner in the world every day uh, in college dining facilities where uh, where people from all over the world in many cases come together to eat. They don't all eat the same thing and they have different value sets and you have to keep up with all of that. So uh, Chef Anthony Jung uh, is joining us, the executive chef of retail dining at UMass Amherst, who's been working at the university for 22 years. Uh, UMass Dining is ranked number one for best campus food by the Princeton Review for five straight years, which is pretty damn impressive. So, Chef, first of all, welcome to our show. Great. Thank you for having me. I know you've been listening to a lot of the conversation. Maybe the first question I should ask is, what thoughts uh, has that conversation triggered so far? This is a lot of stuff that you're dealing with uh, on a pretty regular basis. Young people whose values, allergies, aversions, and preferences uh, come swarming in together around one of your tables. Oh, absolutely. And uh, with, with both of the, the projects, uh, everything that they mentioned is absolutely true because I get to see it on the front lines every day here at UMass serving uh, 
40,000 meals a day. Wow, that that is a lot. So um, over 22 years, I assume you're also seeing a lot of different changes. What are you doing these days in terms of the kinds of selections you make or the ways that they are prepared that you weren't doing, say, even five years ago? Oh, my God. Uh, just just in my tenure here, we went from like the, the chicken puck <laughs> to <laughs> serving like some of the best authentic traditional foods that, that you could get probably in any major city. Uh, internationally, um, uh, along with you know catering to our customers that are uh, have certain choices or dietary restrictions, allergies. So it's just really incredible. Not only at UMass, but the entire industry as a whole has uh, gotten better. Uh, and we really believe that we really add to uh, the campus life so much more so than maybe when you were in college. <laughs> well, you can't imagine what it was like when I was in college. Although we had really good food where I was, but it wasn't it wasn't diverse and it wasn't cognizant. I mean, you were supposed to pound your round peg into the square hole of what was being offered that day. It feels though as though your job is very different, which is to kind of anticipate needs and wants in a much more pluralistic student body. Oh my God! I, I mean, the um, what students are exposed to and what they know as consumers is. It's just night and day. Even when I was here as a student at UMass, pretty much it was one protein, one starch, a dinner roll, a vegetable, and some uh, fountain beverages. And pretty much that was our dinner. Now there are like hundreds of options. Every day in the dining commons, we have at least 100 different recipes that the staff needs to execute. And that can include uh, beef pho from Vietnam. It can include Korean spicy ribs. It could be uh, a vegan... Um, uh, plant forward uh, menu item. It could be an allergy meal that we have uh, to execute for someone that uh, has an airborne allergy. So it, it's just quite incredible what the, the team does here on a daily basis. Right. As long as you mention uh, airborne allergies, we should talk a little bit about that. I mean, there's so the so-called big nine, right? Milk, eggs, peanuts, mm -hmm. tree nuts, fish, crustacean, shellfish, wheat, and soy. But you're not just having to worry about, I mean, first of all, I don't think anybody worried about that stuff, any of that stuff when I was in college. But you're, you're aware of, anyway, and sensitive to a, a larger palette of allergies. Oh, a a absolutely. Um, so when I started in the dining commons, maybe the nut allergy was uh, the prevalent one where it's like, okay, this person's allergic to walnuts. However, uh, in the past 10 years or so, uh, maybe the diagnosis of um, allergies have gone much better, but we deal with uh, probably about 30 to 40 students that will be allergic to these one-offs. So um, maybe like black pepper, if if they just have the parts per billion of black pepper, they can go into aphylactic shock. So um, we have to be so cognizant of these um, these very specific allergies other than uh, the the big nine. So another part of this is, and we've been talking about it on the show so far, um, students and presumably you and your staff too are more concerned about carbon footprint questions than previous generations. So not only are you having to create these meals and make them scalable and all that kind of stuff, but you really do have to maybe think a little bit more uh, about about the sourcing and the implications of the sourcing. So talk about that conversation. How does that take place among you and your staff? Oh, uh, it's it's extremely important. Um, again, being on a college campus, our student body is uh, so much more passionate about uh, 
the um, how we take care of our planet, where we're sourcing from. UMass sources roughly between 20 to 25 percent uh, local produce. And this year we're rolling out on our uh, menu identifiers a uh, carbon footprint scale. Uh, so from good to poor on that as well. So it's going to be the first in the country where we look at all of the recipe or sorry, all of the um, ingredients in that one particular recipe. And we use a matrix to determine the actual carbon uh, footprint for it. So we'll be the first in the country to do this. So I, I feel as though some of the things that we're talking about so far, if you had gone to the director of food services in the residential college I was in in the 1970s, not only would he not have understood a lot of what we're saying so far, but to the extent that I could get him to understand it, the next thing he would say is, well, it's just not scalable. You know, I can offer four or five things per meal, uh, but I, I can't I can't take all of these factors into account and and, and live within my budget. and and. It must be quite a challenge. It's one thing to go out to a restaurant and, and get, you know, locally sourced food and, and food that recognizes a lot of the kinds of distinctions you and I are making right now and then pay, you know, $200 for four people or whatever. You can't do that. You can't have a meal that costs that much. So talk about the money part of this. How do you make that work? That's that's a fantastic question. And that is exactly my job here at UMass. Obviously, it's to make uh, tasty food and um uh, assist at VIP events, but it's really um, the our director, uh, Garrett Stefano asks me that question all the time. And, and he will say, how can we have more local sustainable seafood uh, and not break the bank? And one of the things uh, we've done is we'll use a lot more clams, um, uh, uh, haddock, uh, you know, not the tear fish and things like that. And we'll put that on the menu. So we'll do a curry clam dish in uh, one of the dining commons, fantastic on the food cost, uh, very sustainable. Either we get it from Prince Edward Island or Maine, and then uh, the cooks will make something that uh, the customers will really enjoy. So it's it's not impossible uh, to have those restraints, but if you do make it more local, more sustainable, oftentimes it'll be uh, more uh, it'll be better for the pocketbook. So you, obviously there are things that you have to master. You have to master veganism, know well enough uh, how, how to construct meals that will have significant vegan options. Although, once again, that's something that has radically accelerated uh, over the course of, say, 20 or 30 years. Um, but how about things like I don't want to call them fad diets because they might not be, but I suppose you have to be aware of people who are on paleo diets or ketogenic diets. Or I mean, what do you do do about it? I mean, first of all, I, I guess you first of all just have to keep up with all that stuff. Oh, absolutely. Uh, again, uh, because of the internet and Food Network, uh, our, our consumers are so much uh, more uh, versed in, in food and uh, and actually, I, I think really enjoy uh, eating. So. Uh, with that, um, and again, um, like I mentioned, in each of the dining commons, we're making over a hundred different recipes. So if you can't find something, <laughs> you know, in a hundred different um, items, uh, it, it probably uh, isn't out there. But uh, and again, these will change daily. So this hundred different recipes will, will change uh, each day. So uh, whether it's vegetarian or vegan or plant forward uh, to international. Uh, I, I would like to think that there's something uh, for everybody. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting what you say about the sources of information because I hadn't really given that a lot of thought. But 
you know, once again, I go back to the days when probably like Julia Child might have been just about the only person on television who, who was making food and influencing people's food choices. But it isn't just the Internet or what people read about or what they bring with them from their pre-existing cultural enclaves that they're coming from. But, I mean, there's just a lot of shows on right now that make a lot of claims or plant a lot of ideas about food. It, it, exactly. And, and one of the difficult things is, I mean, the information is great, but there's also a lot of uh, misinformation uh, as well. So that's something we, we also try to do at the university uh, is to also try to educate uh, our uh, student body as well for why we do things. Uh, and, and again, you know, I know you were talking about the two sides of the coin for every, uh, I think the example you used was coffee that, you know, there's so many benefits and then there's so many negative things. So to be able to negotiate you know, all those food items uh, can be kind of tricky. But I think what we uh, start with is, uh, does it taste great? Uh, can we source it locally? And then, um, you know, will our uh, students uh, enjoy it? So I think if we keep that as our compass, I think a lot of times we can uh, hopefully uh, uh, make the right choices. Right. Another thing I learned today, Chef Tony, was that Quinoa, which I associate with virtue, is now consumed so heavily up here in North America that it's become prohibitively expensive to the peasants in Peru for whom it was really kind of the, the baseline of their diet. Uh, and so you think about something like that. And wow, that gets complicated. I, I'm going to run out of time here. So I want to say one of the, conver- the, the other conversation you're probably having, and it's probably a two-way conversation, is with the parents. I mean, the students come in knowing what they want, but you're sort of in loco parentis uh, as, yeah. as a chef. So, so I don't know. What do you hear from the parents? What do you tell the parents? You've only got a minute, I, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, I'll be real quick here. Yeah, uh, I mean, the parents are dropping off their kids uh, to uh, college, uh, probably for the first time, and they just want to make sure that uh, we're going to take care of uh, their child, and and hopefully, um, we're able to do that forty thousand meals uh, a, a day for them. But again, absolutely. Uh, what, what the parents uh, think of our program and each parent gets to uh, eat for free uh, mm-hmm. when they're on campus. So hopefully, you know, they, they can uh, taste it, enjoy it, and then have the trust in us that we're going to nurture uh, their child. Well, now I want to rent a kid so I can go eat in your dining hall. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, well, listen, Chef Anthony Jung, thank you so much. Executive Chef of Retail Dining at UMass Amherst. Been working at the university for 22 years. And thanks to all of you who listen. And, of course, a special thanks to Anya Grandalski, uh, our terrific intern who made the whole show happen, with a certain amount of help from people named Lily and Pants. You're restless in your best dress I'm depressed at your swanky dress Living the machinery Salt sea of the hexavine Hell bounds around the compound Make the word swell in the villanelle Ah well You got the dweller, the speller Tremble when you disassemble Scrawl a rough map on the fool's cap Mr. Weinstein drinking a strike nine That's why I compel
like a vegetable, not like a vegetable.